My name is Ryan, and I serve as college and online pastor here at Northway, and we are so glad that you're here with us this morning, uh, for those of you who are here in the worship center, but then also in the overflow room and Facebook Live as well. Um, I'm excited to be here with you this morning to kick off an, a new mini-series that we're doing titled Seated, and I'm excited just to be able to dig into God's Word and study it with you. So in my house growing up, whenever we would have cleaning days, we would divvy up the task among everyone in the family. So my parents would have some tasks, my sister would have some tasks, and then I would have some tasks as well. And so we'd all set out to, to clean, to, to vacuum, to wipe down, to do whatever we were supposed to do. And so I would do my task, and I would kind of go through them, and I would say, all right, I'm finished. I'm done. I, I've done what I was supposed to do. And so then I would go and I would sit down. I would watch TV, play video games, do whatever it was, um, sitting down while the rest of my family was still working. And so what would inevitably happen is one of my parents, usually my mom, would come in and say, son, what are you doing? I'm, I'm sitting down. I've finished my work. I've, I've done cleaning. And she'd say, you finished? i said, yes, ma'am, I finished. Are you sure? Yes, ma'am, I'm sure. she said, all right, come on. And so we'd go to whatever it was I was supposed to have cleaned, and she would do the age-old test of swiping your finger across the surface. And what would become very apparent is my standard of clean was very different from her standard of clean. That whenever she would swipe her finger across, there'd always be some sort of dust, dirt, grime. Even if I thought I had cleaned it, it was still dirty. And so what would then happen is I would then get in trouble because I'm sitting down being lazy while everyone else is working and my stuff isn't finished yet. Because you're not supposed to sit down until the job is finished. Now, eventually, I got more smart, and um, I didn't get to be a better cleaner. But what I would do is I would just kind of walk around, and if I got finished cleaning or what I thought was finished, I just learned not to sit down. And so I would just kind of meander around, piddle a little bit, and just look busy. And then I learned I wouldn't get in trouble for it. So it was a win-win for everyone. So here's why I tell you that. This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, and in Hebrews chapter 10, we are going to see this principle played out of you don't sit down until your work is finished. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get those out, and you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you have the Bible uh, version app, you can open that as well, and the message map will be there, and will also be on the screens as well. But what I want to do before we get into the text is I want to lay a foundation, so, so here's where we're doing this morning, where we're going this morning. I want to lay a foundation that we can then take and have a basic understanding leading into Hebrews 10. And then I want to walk us through Hebrews chapter 10. And for the majority of the verses, what it's going to do is it's going to shape our mind and shape our hearts to a biblical truth. And then the last few verses have three very practical things in the way it plays out in our lives. So first, let's lay a foundation for us. And the foundation is an understanding of mankind's condition. It's understanding mankind's disposition before God. And to know this and to understand this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, where God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the earth and fills it with living things. He creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and says it is very good. And there in the Garden of Eden, mankind dwells in perfect harmony and peace with the presence of God. That mankind walks with God in the garden. And 
God gives them one instruction. Don't eat from the tree. Don't eat from this one particular tree. You can have any other thing, but don't eat from this one tree. And so by Genesis chapter 3, we see mankind throw it all away. We see a serpent come and tempt Eve, the woman, and she takes up the fruit from the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat from, and then she turns and she gives it to her husband, Adam. And there in the very beginning in chapter 3, what we see is sin enters the world. And what God had told them is that if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And as soon as they ate from the tree and sin entered the world, death took place. Now, physical death would come later for the first time, but what happened instantly was relational death and spiritual death. And at once where the presence of God and man dwelled in in perfect peace and harmony, now the presence of God was frightening to mankind. And it was because of their shame, they withdrew from his presence and they hid from God. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3, and this is, by the way, the condition of every man and woman who lived after Adam and Eve. This is our disposition before God that we are sinners and we are in rebellion against him. And in Genesis chapter 3, when God is laying out the consequences for their actions, he gives us a seed of hope. He says that the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, would be born and he would crush the head of the serpent. That he would crush the head of the enemy. And the other element of hope we see in Genesis chapter 3 is a precedent that is laid out and we see all throughout the Old Testament. And it's the principle that the death of one covers the shame of another. What we see is that when Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness and they, they were ashamed, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but the fig leaves weren't sufficient. And so God in his mercy, he clothed them with the skin of an animal. And so what we see is the death of this animal, this sacrifice, covers the shame of Adam and Eve. And this principle of sacrifice is all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Adam and Eve's kids. We see it with Noah. We see it with Abraham and his son Isaac and then Jacob after them. And we see it in the time of Moses. And in the time of Moses, we see it on a larger scale with the people of Israel. That the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. But God was working a mighty salvation for them. That he had sent plague after plague. And finally, he was sending the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn son. But he created a way out to be spared from the plague. What he told the people is that if you will take an unblemished male firstborn lamb, and if you will slaughter it, and take a hyssop branch and dip it in the blood, and then take the blood and smear it over the wooden doorpost of the household, when the death angel would come, And see the blood of the lamb, he would pass over the family. That that household would be spared because of the blood of that lamb, because of that sacrifice. And so the people of Israel, they they listened, they obeyed, and they were spared. And God worked a mighty salvation for them. He drew them up out of Egypt, and he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he starts to make a covenant with them. He says, I am setting you apart from all the people of the world. You are going to be my people And I am going to be your God. But there's still the issue of sin. Remember, because just like all of our hearts, their hearts were bent against God. And God, in his holiness, cannot be around sin. He cannot be around unholiness. So he had to create a way for them to commune with him. And so what he did with the people of Israel, he says, I'm setting aside the tribe of Levi. And I'm going to make you my priests. That you are going to be the mediators between mankind and God. You're going to be the intercessors. You're going to go between. You're going to represent the people to me and me to the people. 
And so he creates these priests of Israel. And they built this tabernacle of worship. And in the tabernacle, day after day after day, from morning until evening, these priests would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. That they would come day after day and offer these sacrifices. First, the priests had to make sacrifices for themselves because they were sinful. And then once they made sacrifices to cover themselves, they would make sacrifices for the people day in and day out. Their work never stopped. And even within the tabernacle, they had this place called the Holy of Holies. And this was where the Ark of the Covenant rests. This was where the very presence of God dwelt. It was so holy that they separated it from everything else with a veil, with a curtain. And that if any man or woman were just to waltz into the presence of God, that the intensity of his holiness and the intensity of his presence would render them dead. They were only allowed in one time a year, and it was the, only the high priest who could go in. The high priest would first have to make all sorts of rituals and sacrifices to cover his own sin, to cover the sins of his family. He would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And then what he would do each year is he would sacrifice a lamb or a goat for the people of Israel for their sins on the altar. He was making atonement for the people before God. And then he would take another goat and he'd place his hand on its head, signaling the transferring of the sins of the people to the goat. And then they would run it away, run it out of town, run it out of the count to, to signify the sins of the people being taken away from God. And so year after year after year, they have to do these sacrifices so that they could be in right relationship with God. Why? Because man's heart is bent against God. It is sinful. And God is holy and perfect. And this sacrificial system continued all throughout Israel's history, all the way up through to the time of Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, when the writer is writing to a certain group of people that are Jewish Christians, what this means is they had a Jewish heritage, but they had come to know Jesus. They had come to faith in Jesus. But amidst persecution, they were reverting back to this old system. They were going back to the old ways. And so the, the writer of Hebrews writes in this letter to encourage them, saying, no, don't go back to this old system. Cling to Jesus. Jesus is greater than anything else. He's greater than any old system. Cling to him. And so he writes this letter to encourage them to hold tight to Jesus. And so what, what I want us to do this morning is we're going to walk through Hebrews chapter 10. And the big idea that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10 is that Jesus is our high priest and he is seated in victory at the right hand of God. And we're going to see the significance of that in these verses. So if you will, we're going to start reading in verses 1 through 4. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers having been once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he tells them, he says, all these people are going back to this old system of sacrifice, this old covenant. He says, no, 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 don't do that. That old system, that old covenant, that old system of sacrifice, it's insufficient. It's incomplete. It's incomplete because it cannot address the sinful heart of man. It has no power to change the heart of man. And so you see the insufficiency in the way it's designed and that the priests have to continually make sacrifices. 
Their work is never done. Why? Because there's always sin to be addressed. The heart of man is never actually uh, changed. And so it's insufficient. It's incomplete. Now, does that mean that God messed up? That God was like, oh, grab the wrong system. My bad, guys. Didn't mean to give you that. No. It had a purpose. It was given to us with intention. And what the author of Hebrews tells us, that he gives us two main reasons why it was given to us. One was because it exposed the hearts of mankind. That when God gives this, this old covenant, this old law, he gives a standard of morality. A standard of perfection, of holy. He says, be holy because the Lord your God is holy. And when he gives that standard, the people then see how far below that standard they really are. That they are, are so engulfed and entangled in sin that they are far below the standard of God. And so the standard that was set, it exposes the sinful nature of their hearts. It serves to put a magnifying glass up to the sins, to, to be an ever-present reminder that they are truly far from God. That the continual sacrifice that had to take place as the people, they looked onto the tabernacle and the temple and they see the smoke every single day and they, they hear the, the priest working and making these sacrifices. It was a reminder that they were far from God, that they were far from the presence of God. The second reason it gives us is that it serves as a shadow of things to come. It serves as a shadow of things to come. Think about how, how shadows work. If you cast a light on an object, it will project the image of the object, a silhouette, an outline. It's not the actual object, but it's kind of a picture of the object. He says this Old Testament law, this Old Covenant, it serves as a picture of something that's coming. It's a silhouette. It's an outline. These sacrifices, the priest, all that, it's meant to point us to something else that is coming down the road. It's meant to lay a foundation for something to be built upon. And so that brings the question for us, what is this something that's coming? What is the object that it's pointing to? Or maybe a better question is, who is the object that it's pointing to? And it tells us in verses 5 through 9, and in these verses, what we're going to see is the author is going to quote Psalm chapter 40, which is a Psalm of David, and then he's going to explain it afterwards. And he starts off by saying, consequently, so because this old system is insufficient and it's incomplete, he said, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings... And sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offering according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So, so here's what's happening. This psalm of David was meant to address the empty sacrifices of the people. That mankind had fallen trapped into saying, well, if I can just do these sacrifices, then God's going to be happy with me. I can go do whatever I want to do. And what David says here and other places in the psalms and really all throughout Scripture, what it teaches is God is a God of the heart. That yes, he called them to make sacrifices, but the sacrifices were never meant to be empty external actions. 
They were meant to be done from a heart of, that is broken and grieved over their sins. It's meant to be done from a heart that, in faith, that it will cover their sins. It was meant to be done with a heart that led to repentance and to obedience. He says, so these empty sacrifices, that, that's not how it's supposed to be. And what the writer of Hebrews says is that Jesus then says this, and in doing so, it says he does away with the first, so that's the old sacrificial system, the old law, to establish the second. And he establishes it when he says, in order to establish obedience to God's will. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, because this first system was insufficient, and it was inadequate and unable to satisfy your wrath truly. I have come in obedience to your will to satisfy your wrath completely. And so the question is, how does Christ satisfy the wrath of God? Well, he tells us in verse 10. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How does Jesus satisfy the wrath of God? By offering up his body as the ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus, God, the, the firstborn son of God, humbled himself to the point of a man, to be born of a woman, a descendant of Eve. And that he was being fully man and fully God, walked this earth. And when John the Baptist saw him, he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God that is here to take away the sins of the world. And then Jesus, he lived the perfect life, perfectly kept God's law, perfectly obeyed God's will. He was innocent and blameless and unblemished. And then at the end of his life, he was betrayed by a friend. He was put through a mockery of a trial, and the people who accused him couldn't even get their sources straight, so it lasted all throughout the night. And then he was found guilty on trumped-up charges. And he was sentenced to be crucified on a cross. He's then taken, he's beaten, he's scourged. And they place the wooden cross on his shoulders and he carries it up a hill called Calvary. And then on Calvary, they nailed his hands and his feet to this cross. And they raised him up. And while on the cross, while, while dying a, a gruesome death, he came to the point where he said, I thirst. And they took a hyssop branch, they dipped it in sour wine, and they raised it to his lips. And he moistened his lips, and he cried out, it is finished. It is done. And there, as blood dripped down his body and dripped down the wooden post, Jesus died. And by the way, this all takes place during the Jewish Passover festival. The time where the people would celebrate and remember the time when they were stuck and enslaved in Egypt. When God was working a salvation and death was coming, but he provided a way out. Where they slaughtered the unblemished lamb, and they took a hyssop branch and smeared its blood on the wooden doorpost. When the angel of death came and saw the blood, he passed over and spared the people. So the people were spared by the blood of the lamb. Don't miss this. During that celebration is when the Lamb of God, unblemished in every way, was beaten and hung on a cross to die, his blood dripping down the wooden post, then crying out and saying, it is finished, it is done. And he dies, and he dies the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate and final offering for sin. 
that the whole old system, that the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, the, the priest, everything pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to him as the ultimate and final sacrifice. His sacrifice was special because it was complete. It was finished. The work was done. He had fully atoned for sins. And he tells us, the author of Hebrews, in the next few verses, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? The old system the priests never got to sit down because their work was never complete. There was always another sacrifice to be made. But when Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, he died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. It says he doesn't stay dead, that God raised him from the grave on the third day in victory. He appeared to many witnesses and then he ascended into heaven. And then where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of God. He is seated because his work is complete. He has fully conquered sin and fully conquered death. That for those who trust in him, he becomes their high priest, interceding on behalf of them to God the Father. That his sacrifice fully covers, and through his blood, it covers the sins of those who trust him and embrace him as the ultimate sacrifice. And it says one day, he's going to return in full glory. He's going to make his enemies a footstool. He's going to submit them to his full authority. Jesus is our ultimate high priest. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. Because of him, there's no need for any other priest to intercede on our behalf between us and God because he is the ultimate and final high priest. He is the ultimate and final sacrifice. He cried out at the end of his life, it is finished because his work was done. He's the perfect mediator and the perfect intercessor. And it tells us in verse 14 that he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That there's still, there's a sin problem with mankind, so how is it taken care of? Well, it says he's perfected, he's made perfect, he's made um, pure and unblemished. Who? All who, are being, all who are being sanctified. And we know that all who are being sanctified are the ones who have embraced his offering of Jesus, which we see in verse 10. Sanctified is just a churchy word that means holy, set apart. It essentially means to be made to look more and more like Jesus. That those who trust in Jesus are made perfect. There's something special that happens when we embrace the sacrifice of Jesus. It's really incredible. When we embrace Jesus' sacrifice, a transaction takes place. Our sins, our inability to obey God's law, are placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And they're crucified on the cross of Jesus. And then his righteousness, his obedience to God's will, his perfection is placed on us. And so here's what happens. When God looks upon us who have put our faith in Jesus, he doesn't see sinners who have disobeyed his will, who are deserving of his wrath. He sees the perfection of Jesus. He sees Jesus' obedience. And so 
once where we were distant from God, far from him, where we were, uh, we were frightened from his presence and we were, uh, his presence was deadly to us. His presence is now welcoming to us. That through Jesus, we can stand in the presence of God because he is our high priest interceding on our behalf. How is this happening? Well, it tells us in Jeremiah, or it tells us in the next few verses where he quotes Jeremiah. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, our issue is that our hearts are, sin, are sinful and bent against God. And that old law, that old covenant had no power to change our hearts. But what God says here is that with the new covenant, through Jesus' sacrifice, that he's going to etch his law onto our hearts. That his presence comes and dwells within our hearts. That his Holy Spirit comes and resides within us and begins to mold and to shape our hearts to match the heart of Jesus. And what the promise tells us in Philippians 1.6 is that he who began a great work in us will bring that work to completion. That yes, in this life we're going to stumble, we're going to fall even after we've embraced Jesus' sacrifice. But the overall trajectory of our life will be made, us being made to look more and more like Jesus. And then at the end of this life, when we pass on to the next, we have a promise that when God resurrects us, it'll be, we'll be resurrected in full glory sinless, and death will have no power anymore, fully sanctified, made to look like his son, Jesus. So if Jesus is our high priest, and he's seated at the right hand of God in victory, it changes everything for those who embrace that sacrifice. It, it, there's not a part of our lives it does not touch. It literally takes us from death and into life. It welcomes us into his presence. And with the author of Hebrews, he, he gives us a, a few practical things it does for us, three of them, in these last few verses, in verses 19 through 25. So real quickly, let's work through these. It says, because Jesus is our high priest and is seated at the right hand of God, he's going to say, let us, and then start off with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Once we were separated from God, and by nature we were his enemies. His presence was frightening and deadly to us. There was this place called the Holy of Holies, and if anyone walks in, they drop dead because of the intensity of his holiness. It separates, the Holy of Holies separated from the rest of the world through a curtain. But when Jesus, our high priest, goes into the presence of God and offered himself up as sacrifice, it says the temple veil was torn in two. That then Jesus becomes the gateway through which we can enter into the presence of God. That because of his sacrifice, the presence of God is no longer frightening and deadly to us. It's one where we can have full faith and assurance. One where we can have full joy and full peace. 
And he says that we can draw near to him. In fact, that it tells us that the presence of God is dwelling within us. And so, follower of Jesus, when you think of the presence of God, what emotions come to your heart? Do you feel frightened? Do you feel ashamed? When you find yourself giving way over to temptation and over to sin, do you find yourself quick to run to your heavenly Father? Or do you retreat back in shame and withdraw away because you're scared that he's mad at you, you're scared you've disappointed him, and, and you're fearful of it? What you need to understand is that when Jesus died on the cross, his righteousness was placed on you. You are not defined by what you have done. You are defined by what has been done for you. And so when we stumble, when we fall like we do, we don't have to run away from God. We get to run to him with, with him knowing that he's got open arms, that he forgives us our sins and he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we have his spirit living with us, within us to help us better obey him. And so we know that Jesus' sacrifice covers us. So because Jesus is our high priest and is seated in victory at the right hand of God, we can come with confidence to the presence of God. We can draw near to him. The second thing he tells us starts in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So it tells us to hold fast to hope. That because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we can hold fast to hope. What it teaches us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 is that the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That means all of God's promises are secured in Jesus and what he did on the cross. That we can take what he says to the bank. And so because of his hope, we can cling to it. So follower of Jesus, do you find yourself discouraged or sad? Do you find yourself fearful for what the future may bring? Do you find yourself lonely? You need to understand that you have a hope that is unshakable in Jesus. That because the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, when the wind and waves of life come, you have a solid foundation on the promises of God. The promise that God will always, will never leave you and never forsake you. That he's always with you. The promise that God loves you deeply and cares for you. The promise that he is sovereign over every moment and he is working them all for your good and for his glory. The promise that there will be a day where you will dwell with him in eternity with no more pain and no more tears and death and sin shall reign no more. These are the promises of God that we can take to the bank because Jesus has secured them on the cross. Because Jesus, our high priest, is seated in victory at the right hand of God. We can cling to the hope that we have through him. And the last thing we see in verses 24 through 25, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as of the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So because Jesus is our high priest and is seated at the right hand of God, let us stir up, stir up one another to love and good works. It says that because of Jesus, we rally around one another and encourage one another to, to look at the love with which we are loved and allow that to help us love God more and to love others more. That that love would just overflow into every aspect of our lives. But then also he says, 
to encourage one another to good works. That what Ephesians 2.10 tells us is that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're to rally around one another to help us better obey the commands of God. That we hold one another accountable in our pursuit of Jesus. And, and what he tells us is we cannot hope to do this if we neglect to gather together. That if we neglect gathering together in corporate settings like this, where we can come and to, to worship with one another and be encouraged by one another's worship, to come and study God's word together, that we can't neglect to gather in one another's homes and inviting each other into our lives and to study God's word together, that we can't neglect to gather in smaller groups to hold one another accountable and to disciple one another to better follow God's commands, that we cannot neglect to gather together because we have no hope of, of stirring one another on to love and good works if we stop gathering. See, there's a misconception of the Christian faith that it's an isolating thing, that it's individualistic, that it's just my spiritual journey and there's no one else involved. What the Bible teaches is, yes, we are saved into right relationship with God, but we are also saved to a people. We're saved to a body of believers who come together and who serve the Lord, who love the Lord, and are a light into the dark world. So follower of Jesus, do you find yourself trying to isolate? Do you find yourself withdrawing and retreating from community? Ask yourself, are you an agent that is building up and encouraging one another? Or are you someone who's divisive in the body and then also within your friendships and in your family? Are you someone who is helping hold others accountable and letting others hold you accountable into better obedience? Or are you someone who is paving a way for sin? See, we're called because Jesus is at the right hand of Christ, or right hand of God as our high priest, to spur one another on to love and to good works. I want to close just by speaking to one more group of people. And that's those who have not embraced Jesus as their ultimate sacrifice. Those who are unbelievers, those who have not fully taken that step to embrace Jesus. You need to understand that because of your sin, you are far from God. That you are separated from him because of your sin. You need to understand that the presence of God is not a place of freedom for you. It's a place that is frightening and is deadly. And you need to understand that there will, become, there will come a time after this life where you will sit in that presence in judgment. But you need to understand that God made a way for you. And his name is Jesus. And that if you would embrace Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus as your high priest who intercedes on your behalf between you and God, if you will believe in who he is, and that he's, this, that he's God, that he's man, that he lived the perfect life of obedience, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, but that God raised him from the dead in victory. If you will believe that and you will trust that, then the curtain is torn in two for you as well. That where the presence of God is at one point frightening and deadly to you, it is now one of freedom and of peace and of joy. And that presence dwells within you and that you will dwell with it for all eternity. My hope and my prayer is that you would embrace this 
and that you would be reconciled to the God who created and loved you, and you'd be reconciled to a people who will come alongside you to help you love him more and love others well and to follow in obedience. My hope and my prayer is that you would turn from your sins today and trust Jesus as your ultimate sacrifice. Thank you.